Hey, you're listening to Tech Talks with Lou and I'm Lou Temlett. I hope you're having a good day and I'm really thankful for you being here. So this is Tech Talks with Lou, the show in which I discuss the top tech secrets for success from the best in today's digital world. Last time I spoke with Elizabeth Hancock, author and podcaster of Work Your Energy, and she has spent 20 years in the corporate world helping individuals and businesses achieve their goals and maximize their potential. If you haven't already listened, head back after this episode and let me know what you think. My guest today has five patents to their name. They have 10 years experience in electrical engineering and their specialism is robotics. I'd like to welcome Ginny Foster to my podcast. Hi, Ginny. How are you? Hi, Lou. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, doing really well. I'm really grateful for you being here and taking your time out because I know we've we've prepared and we've had conversations about this particular episode that really we found a lot out about each other and how we operate in business and technology. And without giving the complete game away, both of us have normalized our skills to the point where we are today. But I want to start um, at the beginning for you, Ginny, in terms of your education and the where where it all started, because you're an electrical uh, experience in electrical engineering and you're a robotics specialist. So where did it all begin? Did it begin with robotics and tech? Lou, I just want to thank you uh, for having me on your show. And I've really enjoyed listening to your previous episodes. And I just want to say thank you for having me here. And um, in terms of where you want to start, like how far back do you want me to go? Well, we talked about kind of switching creative courses and languages. Go from wherever you feel comfortable, but that's what I'm that's what I'm angling for. Okay. <laughs> so so I'll start with with like where I am at this moment. So right now, my story, I help manufacturers identify and source the right robotic and industrial automation solutions for their applications. I connect engineering teams with the right robots, the right end of arm tools, and the right training to give them the confidence to become the go-to robotic champion at their company. So I got to where I am today through determination and persistence and also from the teachers who taught me throughout my life. And there were a lot of first attempts that just never took off. And I think the resilience to try and try again, it came at a very early age, but you know, it's kind of painful. It, it hurts a lot. And that's what I want to talk about. And I want to talk about having that growth mindset to, to develop and cultivate that resilience within ourselves. Okay, so we we did talk about creativity. I want to hear because um, my feeling is that a lot of us in the technical world have an outlet or we have some element of creativity, something over and above um, or kind of equal to technology. So, okay, so you're mentioning technology and you're mentioning creativity. So I feel like this is where... I can talk about being a digital immigrant in a land of digital natives. So in middle school and in high school, um, I was with the absolute last class to have paper and pencil and notebook. Everyone else in, in the years below us, they it was mandatory. They had to have tablets and laptops. And I mean, when, when we um, 
when we did typing class, like we had a computer class and we had a computer lab and there was an actual class that we went to every day in middle school. And it was, um, we learned how to type. And there was one day, maybe it was two days that we learned how to draw in Microsoft Paint. And that was it. So everything that we know, we have taught ourselves. And I'm very proud of my whole entire generation of people, because we truly are digital immigrants in a land of digital natives. I love, I love that. And for me, that completely echoes. Um, I'm a little bit older than you are, Ginny, but um, I get where you're coming from. It's about having those tactile skills, the creative skills, whether it was, you, you know, with pen and paper or, you know, inks and paints and canvases, but it's actually being able to use those tools and create things without technology. So from a kind of an analog mindset comes the the flow into digital because we've learned to adapt and develop in a non-digital space. Yeah. So my middle school and high school really prepared me with a strong foundation in writing and the arts. When I got to university, I discovered that everything that I had learned in math and science, it was really covered in the first two weeks of class. And it was very difficult because that during that time, I was on academic probation for my first semester. So I used a tactic that I had developed in middle school. And this is so going back to middle school, when I was in middle school, I noticed um, that a lot of the other students were performing very well and they had all of their names listed on the wall. They had, there was a list, it was a distinguished honors and honors list. And I was like, wow, they, how did they do that? That's really cool. I, I think in middle school, what I was doing, I was reading books to escape that, you know, that social anxiety of being you know, a very vulnerable early teenager. And so I was going to the library and I was checking out all these fantastic books on vampires and dragons and all kinds of, you know, creative things. And that's where I was really escaping to throughout middle school. <laughs> so I discovered, you know, if you read during class, you probably are not going to know what the homework assignment is. So there was a day and I distinctly recall this day when I looked at the list and I was like, oh, gosh, dang it, I'm going to be on that list. So I went around to all my teachers and I asked them what I could do better. And lo and behold, they told me, don't read during class, Ginny. <laughs> so <laughs> that's when I put down all of the creative stuff. And that's like, I really had to put it down and focus on number one, paying attention in class. And, and number two, just um, being a little bit more, I would say, uh, assertive with what it was that I wanted to accomplish. And that started out in middle school. And so in university, when I was faced with this similar challenge, um, you know, I did the same tactic again. I went around to all my professors and I asked, how could I do better? And they said, you really need to get a strong foundation in math. So go to all the TA sessions or the teaching assistant sessions and really build up your math skills and then come back to engineering. So what I was able to do was graduate early with a degree in Spanish. And I got as many math classes as I could. I, wow. I relentlessly summer after summer. And um, I think that the challenge was getting started. So calculus one was exceptionally difficult for me because it was that first toehold toe into the 
the more advanced math courses. And it took three tries. And I finally, on the third try, I passed calculus one with flying colors. And from there on, I was off to the races. So the differential Mm. equations, linear algebra, all of the math that's needed to understand our world and and describe the the physics of our environment. That's that's what I got my background uh, foundation in. So fabulous. So um, one of the So there's you as a student, pupil in your school, and you're seeing the list of grades, Mm -hmm. and you're not in the top sector. Oh, no. (laughs) I wasn't aware of the list. You're in the bottom. You're in the bottom. And you proactively seek to have conversations with all of your educators to find out ways on how to improve. That's incredible. The fact that you've absolutely put yourself out there to ask for help rather than, you know, imagine, you know, someone seeing their name at the bottom of that list and going, oh, I'm useless. I can't do anything more. Um, Or someone at the top of the list um, that's going, you know, I'm really great. I can achieve or maybe complete opposite feelings. But you've proactively taken steps to improve, which, you know, is outstanding at such a young age and it feels like you've had that incremental process and progress in your life to get to where you are with your your patents and other things you graduated and had a spanish degree tell me more so i i am naturally more inclined to pick up languages quickly and i believe it has been something that has been normalized throughout my life um but it this is just something it's another aspect of um creativity and learning that I really enjoy. And um, it actually, in starting in the, during the pandemic, I really missed it. I deeply, deeply missed having Spanish conversations. And so I sought out and um, developed a relationship with a coach. I have a Spanish speaking coach that I talk with once a week. And it is from these conversations that I feel that, you know, my dexterity and language, the breadth of language and vocabulary that I have has really improved. And so is the fluidity. So at this point in time, I consider myself a near native speaker in Spanish. I'm wow. not a... I... <laughs> oh, go ahead. I, no, no. I, I remember, um, yeah, doing French. I think I opted out of German, but um, I kind of later in my life tried to learn German. I wasn't very successful. But I remember doing um, Spanish at A-level and found that it had a, a nice kind of flow to it, um, was quite kind of drawn. But what I'm seeing is that the more and more people I talk to in technology, they have a very special skill in being able to learn languages of any kind of, you know, any any sort. So it's not surprised to me that your skill in Spanish is superb and you've got a degree and you're continuing that learning because it feels like there's a formula in, in people with kind of tech mindset that, it is just another way of learning and progressing and, and piecing sentences and strings of code or, you know, sequences and formulas together. So that's no surprise. But that's so interesting. I never would have thought this. I thought they were two, like two very separate entities and, um, I think it's really fun because, you know, with podcasting and, and with the, the digital landscape that we have right now, it is so fun to bring worlds together that otherwise would have been very separate. So I feel I feel that, 
you know, this is just something that um, it's helping us all to connect on such a deeper level and to reach more people. It's, it's so cool. So thank you again for having me on your podcast. So you made a transition from languages and reading and literature to technology and engineering and robotics. So did that happen in your first job in industry or was there a transition prior to that? And obviously you've got your maths and your your calculus and all of those cool things. I mean, my transition probably, like if I were to go back, the nugget of it started in middle school because that's where, you know, I developed the assertiveness to see something I wanted and then to ask others for the path forward. And so practicing that um, and having having that as a, a tool because it is that that social interaction with others, that's a tool. Having that has really helped me move forward um, along this path. And it's allowed me to connect with the right teachers who've given me the right pieces of knowledge. So going through high school and then going to university, I think there's a very, very massive transition there because high school was focused mostly on liberal arts and sciences, or excuse me, liberal arts and um, languages and had a very heavy emphasis on writing, whereas university was focused on the sciences and the math. And and the emphasis was not necessarily on your ability to communicate. It was instead emphasized on, on the correctness of your answer. And having that shift, that mindset shift, um, that was very difficult because I think a lot of students do this. A lot of students, you know, they equate um, their their identity of academic success. They equate that with their ego. So when they get out into an environment which is not like the one that they've been succeeding in, then it hurts their ego significantly, and they feel like they're at the bottom of the heap and they don't really have the tools to figure out the path forward and. and get on the right track again. And that's, that's where I kind of want to pay homage to this, this book, the mindset book by Carol Dweck, because the resilience necessary in order to learn from failures, it really takes a lot of positive energy. And um, it, it takes letting go of the ego and accepting the learning process. So um, Absolutely. I really wish I had read that book when I was repeating all of those calculus classes because <laughs> it takes so much resilience to repeat a class. Like a lot of times, you know, you have a student and they get a, a poor grade. They, have, they don't understand the material and they don't test well. And they therefore they drop the class. They stop. Yes. They say this path is not for me. And it's... Yes. It I, I agree. Um, I, I, you're bringing back memories for me now. I took some, yes, I started out and doing A-level maths. Um, you know, I'd kind of succeeded an A-grade student in my kind of GCSE level um, and thought maths was my thing. I absolutely loved it, but literally a few weeks in and it was just above me. And I actually, I did step out and I took, you know, uh, communications and drama and theatre and kind of TV uh, kind of uh, courses at A-level rather than sticking with the maths. It was just it too was much for me. <laughs> it was a comfortable place. So you grew, you yeah. grew in a comfortable place. Yes. Yeah. And actually, oh, you're getting me to reflect now because, yeah, I remember um, 
my father is an electrical engineer, uh, so there's some uh, you know similarities uh, from our conversation. But I remember picking up these massive books that had maths formulas and. I think maybe I was only like five or six, but opening these books and go, oh my gosh, I can't wait till the day I understand these formulas. But it just seemed so far away. You know, there were way too many words in those books with all the math formulas. It was just too overwhelming. And they weren't thin books. You know what they're like. These yeah, big maths and study books, they're yes. massive. They are massive. <laughs> they're the most intimidating thing in the world. And if you open them up, they're even more intimidating. No, for for someone that it, it's not a comfortable place. But in my career, what I found is that, you know, I haven't pushed myself down that route. I have gone more to the creative, but I, but I want to know what was the trigger for you actually having that resilience and, you know, making that real drive to push forward and learn and continue to learn. Well, I do have to say there were many times that I would call up my parents and tell them that I quit. And I would, or I would visit home and tell them I was quitting. And I think it was like, it was a weird kind of exercise to go through to say (laughs) that you were quitting out loud, hear yourself say it, and then realize, no, no, you're not quitting. You're not. And so it was a struggle for sure. Um, But I think it helped me realize what it was. It made me self-aware. I think that's what it was, the self-awareness. And once you realize, oh, this is just a pattern, it's a pattern that repeats and there's a way to get yourself out of the pattern. um, I think that just gives you so much more power over steering in the correct direction and and steering along the right path for you as an individual. Mm. So I think, you know, economically in terms of, you know, the timing of everything, um, I was, I was drawn to projects, not out of curiosity, but more out of necessity. (laughs) It was, it was absolutely necessary for me to have a project of my own because there were, um, you know, in 2008 and 2009, there were just no internships available for engineering students. And I, desperately wanted to learn and grow. So the, the projects that I took on, um, those are the ones where I learned a lot of different skill sets. So, okay. So talk to me about these projects, um, that you just did on your own. And I'm assuming you're alluding to the patents at this point. Yes. Tell, tell me more because we have five to your name and, you know, from being, creative and into literature and reading about dragons and whatever and then transitioning into calculus and the maths but then taking it I mean who who even thinks about producing a patent you were you were still relatively young at that point yeah I was really really young (laughs) um so so projects are opportunities to develop new skills And leading up to and then after graduation, I was involved in a series of projects. And with each new project, my goal was always to solve a problem. And this is this is very much very based on what I learned in engineering. My professors, they taught me to approach every problem very systematically, where you define the given variables, you define the target variable, and then you solve. And this systematic approach to identifying the problem and defining the solution, it's the essential core of engineering problem solving. And you can go off on all kinds of tangents about how, you know, 
the engineering is the application of the language of math and math is the language of the world around us and all this stuff. Um, so what I did was I took those very clear, um, that very clear template for how to solve a problem. And then I went out looking for problems that I wanted to solve. And that's what you do. You pick one. And then, and then along the way you learn and grow in order to create the solution. And one of the ways in which I grew was in engineering design because I learned how to identify the problem and then create a solution in such a way that it was new, useful, and not obvious. And that's because those are the three traits, new, useful, non-obvious. That's the three criteria for patentability. And usually at this point, I mentioned that my name is on a total of five patents spanning three projects. And I stop there. But the story is not complete. So when it comes to patents, I've just finished listening to Sarah Davis, We Can All Make It. And she had her first patent in her early 20s um, and just had a vision. You know, she was able to have creative thoughts and solve a problem. And, uh, you know, there were lots of lots of stories around that. So tell me more about your patents. Um, and you allude to having another patent. <laughs> so, um, so I recently found this box, actually my mom found this box in the attic and it had a bunch of papers in it. And one of the papers was the very first patent application that I had ever attempted and it was rejected. And I was reminded of all those emotions of shame and disappointment when I found the papers, because I mean, it's, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of time, effort and money that goes into the patent application process. And I was really emotionally devastated at the time of the rejection. I was really, really young. I was maybe 19 or 20. And wow. I'm very proud of my younger self for persisting despite these emotions of failure. And it's taken me a very long time to realize that failure is just a waypoint along the path to success. And last week I received a call that a third patent had been granted on a project in which there were already two. So now the total count is up to six patents. <laughs> I love, I love your persistence, you know, just uh, failure only being part of that journey and almost you have to fail to continue. But if there's all success, oh, okay, I would really love all success. But <laughs> but having having failure as part of that journey and just being persistent and, you know, keeping going, all credit to you. I'm not going to ask you the detail of, of these patterns. Um, I'm intrigued, maybe offline. <laughs> <laughs> So you work in the field of robotics and you are a robotics specialist. Now, I have worked in uh, for the car manufacturing industry, all but in the sales and marketing office, but I've spent time in factories and been around robots that build cars and humans that build cars. Um, so for me, it's quite a comfortable place. But I'd love to hear about the the robotics experience that you have and some of the fears that some people experience. So that, that really takes us up to where I am today um, because this is what we do at NEF Power. We connect manufacturers and teams of engineers to solutions in industrial automation and robotics. And NEF Power is an industrial automation distributor and we're a robotics partner and we serve a growing area across the United States. So 
what I really like to talk about is how to become a robotics champion because it's an increasingly popular platform and people are so hungry for knowledge. And, and I think it's, it's, well, I'll just stop there. (laughs) People are hungry for knowledge. So (laughs) just two weeks ago, I led my first ever three-day course on how to become a robotics champion. And our goal at the end of three days is to help you increase your value as an engineer or technician by becoming a robotics champion where you work. And we teach you the basics of structural aluminum framing, the basics of end of arm tooling. And we have the, um, we have a robotics lab and we will hand you a robot controller and give you the experience guiding and teaching both a collaborative robot as well as an industrial robot. And uh, which by the way, have differences between the two of them. A lot of people feel intimidated by robots because they think that robots are going to replace people. And this is something that I see every day. And what I hear from customers every day is that when people learn to use robotics, they are in such high demand they are highly valued. And these people are not losing their jobs. Instead, they are getting swamped with more work because they figured out how to save time and improve quality by automating a process. Why are we even talking about robots? It's because human beings are different from robots. Human beings are really good at communicating and connecting and problem solving. And we get really bored when we do the same thing over and over again. And we also get hurt too, because ergonomically, the joints on our body, they can only take so much. So why are robots beneficial? Because robots work lights out 24 seven. Robots don't take vacation. Robots don't get sick. And robots are highly scalable and highly repeatable. So where do you look to implement your first robotic application? You look for dull, dangerous, dirty, and dear tasks. And these are okay. the tasks. I, I, that I've got one. I've got one. Okay. Can, 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 I, can I have a robot just come and do my washing up for me, please, and put everything away and sort out the laundry? And I know that I know there's none of them. Oh my I goodness. I think that's coming. I think it's coming. So so there's like the home economics applications and then there's like the industrial applications. So whenever, you know, whenever there's a new solution that's developed, usually it's rolled out in industry first and it's usually one industry first. And in this case, it's the auto- automotive industry because prior to 2020, the only robots that you saw in any kind of industrial setting were in the automotive industry. But 2020 was like just a huge, hugely um, pivotal year. And it's not just because of the pandemic. It is because that 2020 marked the year in which all of a sudden you began to see more and more robots in other industries as well. So we're talking about aerospace. We're talking about um, uh, warehousing and distribution. We're talking about um, e-commerce, food and beverage, essentially, you know, all of the applications that involve repetitive processes in 2020, they latched onto robotics and it's just, it's been increasing exponentially since. You're listening to Tech Talks with Lou and I'm Lou Temlett. And today I'm talking with Ginny Foster, robotics specialist. You mentioned about there being two different types of robotics, Ginny. Tell me more. Okay. So for for industrial purposes, there's a lot of robots out there, but the ones that we deal with are the ones for manufacturing and there's industrial and collaborative and collaborative robots. They're usually called human collaborative because they allow for human beings to safely work 
in the same proximity and, and within the same footprint as the robot. And this, this is because um, on the other side of it, on the industrial side, industrial robots, they operate at very high speeds. They have pinch points and they are not aware of where humans are with respect to their arms and their their axes. So um, in order in order for a human being to actually have an environment in which they're working side by side with a robot, you really need to have like a series of safety sensors set up and uh, safety and an entire safety platform of safety laser scanners, safety guarding, framing the whole the whole package. Yep. We've seen um, collaborative robots are one of the most popular robots right now. And that's because they come with the sensors on their joints and they come with the sensors on their arms so that when you deploy the robot, it will, when it comes into contact with anything, whether it's a human or an, another piece of equipment, it will stop and it will go into uh, safety stop mode. So these types of um, these types of solutions, they're they're two separate solutions, but you can kind of like you can kind of make an industrial robot behave like a collaborative robot when you have the right safety devices, and that's what Neff Power shows you in our robotics lab. Okay, so I have an experience of a human collaborative robot in being. Forgive me, I don't know what the device is actually called, but it's a vacuum cleaner. But it didn't do a great job. It doesn't feel like robotics are at a level to actually do as good a job as a human, dare I suggest, unless you can tell me anything different. Well, it sounds to me, and I don't want to say brand names, but it sounds to me like you had one of the first uh, machine vision robots. And I, I can picture it in my mind, the algorithm that is used in the machine vision for the robot. So this is, this is the robot's capability to identify its location within its environment and then uh, navigate within its environment. That same algorithm is currently used in a lot of the manufacturing AMRs that are deployed today. And oh. It's getting better. So in terms of the cleaning aspect of it, that's the vacuum side. Can't speak to that. But the machine vision and the algorithms that are used to learn and navigate in real time and, yeah. and the ability to have all of those safety inputs and respond, you know, respond in real time to yeah. um, anybody crossing the path or, or, you know, say a, anybody leaving behind a, a piece of uh, material that is undesirable. Well, all of all of that technology that's that is where you have machine vision you have safety and you have robotics all coming together at the same time so yeah. cutting edge that is that is truly at the cutting edge right now Hmm. Um, uh, one of my experiences, I also um, used to work for Honda and I was lucky enough to be in the same room space as uh, Asimo. And, um, you know, that was incredible to see and to see people interacting. So there's two things that I want to talk about. The first is that the human interface to interacting with a robot, especially with collaborative robots, there there's more and more um, applications for uh, tablet type pendants, like smart pendants that are touchscreen. So these are basically equivalent to your smartphone. And we all know that everybody in the world has really, really latched onto and adopted the smartphone as the preferred uh, technology of the day. So 
So really having the ability to use a tablet and a touchscreen with a robot that has completely and drastically lowered the learning curve. And yeah. we, uh, we actually have a video on our YouTube channel that shows a seven-year-old learning how to operate a collaborative robot using a smart pendant touchscreen. And it took him all of 35 minutes and 17 seconds. And he taught the robot to fly his toy car around. So it is possible and it's very easy to learn. You bring up another memory for me. Um, ah, I can't remember what it's called. It's that road tracks thing that you can put in, you know, like three left, four right, three reverse. Um, but that was in the early days. I remember having one of those um, and actually buying it again in my 20s because I just thought it was cool. Um, but it's one of those retro toys that um, was cool, but not really cool. <laughs> um, um, do you have, because obviously that for me was one of the first introductions into you know, kind of robotic movement, you program this device and it does something that you're telling it to do, but not verbally, but with, you know, key touchpad. So I think the, I think you're talking about like the language with which you tell the robot to do a job. And there's some like the different, there's different interfaces. Some are more based on the Blockly type um, where, where you can like drag and drop blocks into, you know, uh, an environment and give it a logical sequence of tasks to perform. Um, there's another aspect of it in which it's really easy to uh, drag and drop previous tasks. So it gets to a point where if you have somebody, you know, at least show you the first application and show you, you know, what your first job is, you can drag and drop and then change according to how your new application is. And that makes it more scalable. So, the way in which the code is presented to the user is at a much more digestible level. And it's, it's so much easy for a wider uh, percentage of the population to understand. And that's where we're seeing the growth and the scalability because once, once you recognize how to operate a robot with your first application, it is so easy to scale it across the production floor and do multiple applications. It's called Big Track. Um, <laughs> um, let me, this was, this was 1980. This is very, very old, probably before you, no, 1979. My God, it's the first programmable electric vehicle. 1979? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Okay, so I remember it was Big Track that uh, the device was, and um, you were able to program it. And uh, I've just done a quick search here. It's the programmable electric vehicle created by Milton Bradley in 1979. Um, I'll uh, send you a link. <laughs> <laughs> you need to see this. I, I bought it again and again. I just want you oh to see God. it. Oh, my gosh. That but reminds I bought, me of the early Star Wars movies. It's beautiful. <laughs> it is. And In it's a like electro way. Electric vehicles existed so early, and it, we had so much fun. Um, yes, it still bumped into things, and you could spin it around, and you could, you know, get it to make noises. But it was it was great fun. So for me, um, that was my first introduction into something robotic that I could program, and, and maybe that's where my interest in in things 
um, I've kind of come from really. So I remember I um, watched your YouTube video on um, normalizing and in your YouTube video, you talk about how you learned to code at the age of three and then you normalized it. So you never talked about it. Like it wasn't even a big deal to you and you just kind of kept going. And um, that's, that's really your video is what helped me understand what normalizing is. I think, I think we all do that not to, okay. Even this conversation is kind of undermining some of the skills and things that, you know, women in technology or, you know, anybody um, can kind of adopt and learn things and they go, oh, you know, it's just what I do or just what I know. Um, And that's the concept of normalization or not in terms of databases, because I was rubbish at database normalization, but normalizing um, skills and abilities that other people look in awe and don't really understand how that individual can do that thing. Yeah, I think I think it's natural. I mean, it's natural, particularly for women to normalize our roles. And I know that women do amazing and incredible things, and then they don't say anything. But Lou, I love what you're doing with your podcast. You have such a beautiful voice, and you are letting women talk about their successes instead of letting them get normalized into the routine of every day. Thank you. You know, that really is part of my mission. Um, And actually, I'll be quite honest, it's, you know, it is allowing me to unnormalize some of these things. You know, I've been hidden for, you know, 20, 30 years, but it's about sharing the space with other women and other individuals that have just, you know, learned this skill, use technology and have just, you know, exponentially increased their potential and their success in their own way, um, where we completely overlook. And it's not, you know, it's all about the progress and the growth mindset that you referred to earlier. You mentioned curiosity. You're very hungry for knowledge about robotics. And I think there's other people who are mentioning that they're hungry for knowledge about robotics. And we just did um, a booth at a STEM expo a couple weekends ago. And the questions that the kids asked us were phenomenal. I mean, you can tell that kids don't have the same limitations that adults do because they were asked asking for the collaborative robot. And by the way, we rolled a collaborative robot out onto an airfield, which is is really something that you don't normally do. Um, But we did it. We pulled it off very successfully. You can see that video on our YouTube channel. Um, The robot was, it was it was kind of like a claw. So we, we connected a joystick to it. And so we had the kids operating a joystick and having the robot go down and they would pick up, it would pick up candy and then it would hand the kids the candy. And they had so much fun doing this. Um, but I, they love, were- I love that. I love that because, okay, as parents, and I know you're not a parent yet, um, but we, we get asked all the time for, you know, a dollar or a pound to put in these machines with these claws that you have to use, but they're always unsuccessful to make a profit. <laughs> and now you're talking about collaborative robots and this claw and actually it's succeeding. Oh, my goodness. I can clearly see that collaborative robotics are not going to get in to that particular sector of society. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was a collaborative gripper. So um, collaborative robot, collaborative gripper. And the only, the only modification we had was the joystick. So um, yeah, I don't see it going into that 
segment of <laughs> industry. So, so um, much money will be lost because actually the dexterity <laughs> of the kids and even the parents that go, they I were, can move oh this my gosh. Thing. The kids you know were so about? good. Yes, they were so good at figuring out how to operate this robot. The the number of successes, like we had successful pulls every time. And so the next wow. day I had to go back and buy a whole bunch more candy because <laughs> they were picking up every single time. That's the problem. <laughs> um, but what I was mentioning is that these kids, they don't have limitations like adults do. So they don't walk up to something and immediately see all the ways that it doesn't behave. Instead, they were asking the robot to interact with them on the level of Weibo and Wally and all of these cartoon character robots that we've seen in movies. So the technology, it's getting there, but it's not quite there yet. And I'm really proud to be at Neff Power because we are at the forefront of robotics for manufacturing. Uh, we're partnered with the world-class leaders in the fields of robotics and advanced vision. So that literally takes you up to where we are today. So what's next for you? Uh, we were talking about languages and literature and you get involved with a lot of podcasts. So tell me about what projects you've got coming up. Well, Lou, um, since the start of the pandemic, I've really been developing conversation skills in Spanish. And so while I've been simultaneously creating a lot of content that talks about robotics, specifically at Neff Power, I'm really excited to be able to speak to those same topics in Spanish. Oh so my gosh, you're blowing my <laughs> mind. That's incredible. Okay. So Ginny doesn't just have robotics expertise and specialism. She doesn't just um, have an absolute skill and ability in speaking Spanish. She's putting them both together. Well, that's incredible. This is, yeah, it's really something I'm excited about because, you know, prior to saying it out loud for the first time right here, these two universes have been very separate for me. And I finally see a, a path forward in which I can benefit those with whom I work and also benefit an entire customer base. Um, as we have grown and expanded as a company, um, we've noticed that more and more of our customers are Spanish speakers. And this is this is true for the areas in which we've expanded, specifically in Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. So to be able to serve these customers with the same level of knowledge, perhaps maybe not the same level of vocabulary, but certainly the same level of knowledge. I'm very excited to do this. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased you felt comfortable in sharing that. I feel I felt goosebumps. And I know when we've we've spoken before, we both have moments of realization that oh my goodness this is incredible you know what we're achieving is fantastic and this is what comes back to normalization that we don't take just a moment to appreciate just how fantastic we are okay i've said that <laughs> out loud that's well, that's me and you plural occasionally we need to do it so shh, it's right at the end of the podcast so no one's going to get to this point and actually listen to it <laughs> Oh, but they do. I listen to all the way through every single time. Oh, it's um, Ginny, it's just been fantastic interviewing you today and sharing this space from kind of tech, creative, normalization space. And I just want to wish you absolute fantastic luck. Not that you need it. I know you have all the skills and abilities to go ahead and continue to make even more of a success of your career and your life. 
Well, thank you so much, Lou. And I would love for your listeners to be able to reach out and engage with me on my LinkedIn page. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Jenny Foster. It's Jenny with a G. And you can also see all kinds of videos on our robotics lab. It's on the Neff Power YouTube channel. And that's N as in Nancy, E as in Edward, F as in Frank, F as in Frank, P-O-W-E-R. Lou, thank you so much. You are most welcome. It's been fabulous. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have recording it. I look forward to have you listening in again for the next episode. And in the meantime, I'd love you to rate, review and download this episode. Thanks again for listening. 